In the beginning of this week's Parsha, Parsha Shlach, we get the core, the kernel of an idea that I do believe will change people's lives. I believe this idea is actually the core condensed version of Musar. If you want to know what Musar is, frequently Musar is conflated as if it's a subject. It's a kind of Torah subject. It's ethics. It's philosophy. It's character. It's ethical refinement. It's personal perfection. And while that is true, it doesn't actually get to the absolute core of what Musar is. And when we see what it is, it expands dramatically beyond being limited to being a subject or an idea or a style. It's actually more, I would say, it's an attitude. It's a way of life. So let's give the backstory to the beginning of the Parsha and we'll go from there. Last week's Parsha ended with the Lashon Hora of Miriam. Miriam was uh, Moshe's sister and she, a whole series of events that led to it, but she spoke out negatively about Moshe. She said, why is Moshe any better than us? He's a prophet, but we're prophets after all. The whole nation is prophets. Why is he any better than us? And of course, the Torah quickly points out that Moshe is better than them. Moshe is a different kind of prophet. So if we, we want to talk about the different classifications of prophets, the different levels of prophet that Maimonides talks about at great length in the beginning of his book, that's where it started, where, where it talks about the difference, the core difference between Moshe's prophecy and the prophecy of all the other prophets. That aside, what happens to Miriam? So she gets called out with Aaron, and suddenly she is mitzoras kashelet, she has tzoras, she's whitened like, uh, like snow, and she gets sent out of the camp for seven days. Everyone has to wait for her, even though it's time to travel, they have to wait for her because Miriam is wait- Miriam is quarantined outside of the camp for seven days. Everyone waits for seven days. As an interesting side note, you see Rashi says that what merit did Miriam have to have everyone wait for her? Because when she was but a little girl and Moshe was placed into the box, she was there waiting for him a few minutes. And it's interesting how reward is extrapolated in the Torah a few minutes of a girl waiting for one person is extrapolated when God gives reward to an entire nation waiting for one old woman for seven days. That aside, that's the end of last week's Parsha. This week's Parsha begins with the story of the spies. Moshe sends 12 men, great leaders of the people, to go to Israel, scout out the land, find out the defenses, the vulnerabilities, the fortifications, look about the people, look at the agriculture, look at the land, find out about the land. You know why? Because we're about to go into Israel. Uh, they were under the impression they're going in right away. And therefore, let's see what the land is like before we come and attack it. Let's expose its vulnerabilities to know where it's uh, most weak, and therefore we could attack it. That's that's the idea. And of course, it goes horribly wrong. And as a result of the 40-day stouting excursion of the spies, the Jewish people, they receive the terrible, terrible news that they're going to have to spend 40 years, one year per day, in the wilderness and everyone's going to die. Everyone of this generation is going to die. And they're going to go into Israel after Moshe dies. And after all the people of that generation are going to die. And only their descendants are going to the land of Israel. That's this week's Parsha. But you look at an amazing Rashi, the first Rashi of this Parsha. And it asks the critical question, why are these two stories juxtaposed? It says Rashi. 
Lama Nismacha Parshas Miragam Parshas Miriam. Why is the story of the spies juxtaposed to the story of Miriam? Lefi, because Shelachsa al Istediba, she was punished due to matters of evil speech. Why? Shadibra Ba'achel, she spoke on her brother. Virishaim Halalu. And these Rishaim, these wicked people, Ra'u, they saw, Vilo Lakhu Musar. They saw and they didn't take Musar. This Rashi is the critical idea of what Musar is, and by extension, and we're going to prove this, the core for all greatness and achievement and perfection that we could get in life. So first of all, this is a source. The word actually is used as Musar. You know, where does Musar appear? Here is the word where it actually appears. But what does this mean? They saw something. They saw Miriam. She spoke negatively about her brother. Mind you, her younger brother. And of course, there was no ill intent. Yet, her speech that was negative resulted in her being punished. Immediately. And these, they see it. They see it for six days, seven days. Everyone's ready to go. Everyone has their badge packed. Why are we waiting? We're waiting for Miriam. And whoa, 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 what happened to Miriam? Well, she spoke negatively about her brother, and she's outside quarantined. What an embarrassment. Well, what'd she do? She spoke, she spoke negatively. Look at the consequences of negative speech. That's Musser. But they didn't take it. What does it mean to take Musser? What does it mean to take Musser? It's Musser is Musser, right? It's, 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 it's a lesson, right? The answer is what Musser really is, the activity of Musser is when you see something happening to someone else, when you encounter something that can be used as a lesson, you apply it to yourself. When they see Miriam, or when they should have, they should have seen Miriam, had they taken Musser, had they learned the lesson of Musser, they would have seen what happened to Miriam. She spoke negatively about her brother and she was punished. And they would have made sure that they're not going to speak negatively and be punished themselves. Musser is whatever you encounter, apply it inwardly. Take the lesson and internalize it. Find a way to integrate what you encounter, what you come across, and internalize it and change. Musser is not a kind of study. It's not like there's, a, there, there's, there's different bookshelves. There's the Musser bookshelf, and there's the Torah bookshelf, and then there's the uh, Kabbalah bookshelf. No. Everything, everything you read, everything you meet, there was no studying. Everything you see, everything you encounter, if you have Musser, if you have the attitude of Musser, you say, what does this mean for me? How do I make myself better because of what I saw? That is the core of Musser. And from that, it stands everything else. People like to talk about there's Torah and there's Musser. What Musser is, is the keys to unlocking the power of Torah. It's not a sister subject. It's a methodology by which we take the power inherent in Torah and make use of it. If someone doesn't have Musser, then... They come to Torah and they can learn a lot of things and their brain could be really dazzled with amazing lessons. 
but they don't actually have the gold. The gold is where you change. Well, how do you change? You change with Musser. The core of greatness is Musser because Musser is taking Torah and integrating it. And, this, and a critical point here, the great sages, everything they learned, every Torah, every part of Torah, they used Musser, something which is totally not related to Torah. Things that don't see. I remember my grandfather, one of his essays, he writes about Hezek Re'iyah. Hezek Re'iyah, on the surface, should have nothing to do with Musser. What's Hezek Re'iyah? Hezek Re'iyah, Hezek means damage, Re'iyah of sight, visual damage. What's visual damage? Two neighbors, and one of them has a window looking into the other guy's pool. And there's a whole, whole set of laws about how neighbors have to take into account the fact that when they build a huge house, they're now causing damage because they could see into someone else's house. That doesn't seem, that's, that's laws, that's interpersonal laws. And my grandfather turned this into a whole lesson in Musser. And that's what the great sages do. They don't say, let's learn Musser now. Oh, now we finish with Musser, let's learn Torah. Musser is an attitude that they apply to themselves. Everything they encountered, what can I learn from it, regardless of whether or not it is Musser on the surface or Musser is baked into it. And I want to uh, take this idea and really, uh, really follow it uh, forward. You know, um, there were many responses to the great challenges historically that the Jewish people had uh, with, uh, with the changes that happened since the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, past 500 years. Uh, the world changed, and of course, Jewish history, Jewish life doesn't happen in a vacuum. And when Jews are suddenly admitted to universities and allowed to engage in all kinds of professions and be citizens of the world, a lot of them drop Torah. So you look at the period, let's say this 18th and 19th century, it's a period of a remarkable boom in Jewish movements. You have Jewish movements towards Torah, and you have Jewish movements away from Torah. But everyone's, in, everyone's obsessed with movements because the, the tectonic plates of the world, of society at large, are shifting. And therefore, you have all these movements. There were two distinct movements, one of the, 17th, of the 18th century, 1700s, one of the 19th century, uh, uh, 19th century the 1800s, designed to reignite the Jewish world, the Torah world, with passion, with vigor. One of them was dramatically successful. The other, in a certain way, was a failure. The successful one was Hasidus. The Hasidic movement of the 18th century changed the world. The less successful is the Muslim movement. The Muslim movement, that was an effort to also change the world. But the difference is, is that the Muslim movement, it's one that's very demanding on people. It's demanding. Everything you see, point inward. Everything you see, I have to change. Everything you encounter. And even people, you know, the, 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 great, te- the great peril of, of working on character perfection is that you feel like you're better, right? If you go on a diet, the second, you, the, the instant, the millisecond you go on a diet, you start judging everyone else who's by the candy aisle. It's, it happens right away. It's, it's instantaneous. Because with, with self-improvement, comes a feeling of grandeur, comes a feeling, and that's what Musser's all oriented to try to attack. You have to constantly, ceaselessly take Musser. These were great people. They're called Anoshim. They're called Tzadikim. They're called Kshirim. They're called righteous people. But they're wicked because they stopped for a millisecond taking Musser. 
Musser indeed is very demanding, and that's why it maybe was not so successful for the masses. Whereas Hasidic movement, it's about society, it's about culture, it's about coming uh, as a community together, it's about distinctive clothing and distinctive foods and distinctive language and distinctive everything, and that kept the Jews united. But that's, it's an interesting point. Why was Musser that was founded for the same reason, why was it not successful on a big scale? Indeed, it was successful, very successful in saving the yeshiva world, the world where people already attuned towards accepting its lessons. But it didn't indeed make a dramatic change. I guess it did by extension, it made a dramatic change, but it didn't actually make the same inroads in Jewish world like the Hasidic movement did. But that's because Musser is very demanding. I, w- I want to look now at a couple of weeks ago. A couple of weeks ago, we had the episode of the Nazir and the Sota. The Sota is the adulterous woman. And as we know, you read the story, she is a suspected adulteress, she's brought down, she's brought to the temple, and she's embarrassed in a humiliating way because she behaved really terribly, or at least that is alleged, or that is suspected. And after the next section of the Torah talks about the Nazir. The Nazir is the person who makes a vow to abstain from wine, coming into contact with dead people, and cutting his hair for a minimum of 30 days, and it could be as long as he makes it. And the Talmud, on the very first page of the book of Sota asks, why are these two sections juxtaposed? And indeed, it's juxtaposed in the Torah, it's also juxtaposed in the Talmud. The book of Nazir really does not belong in the section of Nashim, it belongs in the section of Kachim. It's in the wrong order of the Mishnah, per its subject matter, but it's put next to the book of Sota for this reason. Why? Says the Talmud, Rashi brings it down as well in, in this commentary on the Chumash. Call Haroe Sota Bilkiltula, whomever sees a Sota in her disgrace, Yazir Atzmo Minhayayin. He should make himself a Nazir from wine. He should abstain from wine. And this, I think, again, really goes back to what the core of Musr is. You see someone else who committed or may have committed adultery, what do you say? Our tendency is to look at them and say, what a terrible person, what character flaws, what someone who is such so weak-willed, where's the self-control? That's what the, hu- the human tendency is. What does the Torah say? No, no, don't cast, you, you, may, you may be able to cast judgment on her, but what's, where do you take the lesson? Where, where's that key to unlock the value? The key to unlock the value is by saying, this could happen to me. How do I grow? How do I prevent the same fate from befalling me to abstain from wine? To take a, take a time period to work on becoming someone who's more holy, more abstained from physicality, and therefore less likely to trip up in this way. And I think it's a total reframing of, of, of what we ought to um, what, what our natural tendency is. Normally, we like to consider ourselves as being tzaddikim. We're perfect and everyone else, everyone who's more religious than us, who's more observant than us, well, they're fanatics. People who are less, the people who are less religious than us, well, those people are real heathens. We're kind of the sweet spot. And, and that is antithetical to Musr. To say you're in the sweet spot means you don't need to do any work. That's exactly where the Yetzirah wants you to be, to say, I'm good. Musa is to say, no, how can I become even better? Maybe I am good. How do I become even greater? Or maybe I'm not good and I need to become good. That's what Musa is. Musa is constant growth. 
someone says, I'm good, I'm in the sweet spot, I'm in, I'm in the, the Goldilocks zone. Everyone more religious than me, well, they're fanatics. Everyone less religious than me, well, they're heathens. I'm at the sweet spot. That's not growing. If, you, if, you, if you're complacent, if you're happy where you are right now, well, then why, would you, why should you change? You're, you're there. But unless you're Moshe, and you know what? Even Moshe could have, was always constantly growing. Unless you're dead, you, there's always room to grow. Famous line of the famous line of the Musarites. Every time, so long as the candle is yet burning, so long as our soul is still alive, we could still grow, we could still perfect. That's the attitude of Musa. And by the way, the Baal Shem Tov of Hasidic origin, he would say a very powerful idea. Life is like a mirror. Everything you say is God sending you messages. Everything is a message. What you see is because what God wanted you to see. You see it because God said, this is an appropriate lesson for you. And of course, that's with Torah, because all of Torah is for us to see, but it's even in life. And we are used to thinking outwardly, comes to Lone Musser and says, no, think inwardly. What can I learn from this? Everything I encounter can be a lesson. Of course, that's with Torah to impart the lessons of Torah within, but also in life. What can I do? Don't, don't judge other people. Say, what can I do? That's the last mile, and that is the golden keys of Musa. Let's talk, talk about Rabbi Akiva for a second. Rabbi Akiva is one of the most important figures in Jewish history. And the reason why is because he comes and he rises and he emerges at a time where the Jewish people were most vulnerable. They were uh, gone through the destruction of the temple. The rabbis were all hiding on the ground. The Romans are very strict edicts. The Romans, they uh, make rules against Torah study and against observance of Shabbos. Judaism is under assault. Temples destroyed. Hundreds of thousands of people were slaughtered. And Rabbi Kiva is the one who was able to ensure that Torah is perpetuated and, the, and indeed the Jewish people will continue on. So Rabbi Kiva, he is one of the vital figures. He, he is one of those links that brought Judaism and Torah from God to Moshe all the way to us today. If we didn't have Rabbi Kiva, based upon the history as we know it, it's very likely that we wouldn't be here sitting talking about this because Torah would have been forgotten. And indeed, the Talmud does say that. Talmud Yivama says, if not him, Torah would be forgotten. Now, we know Rabbi Kiva had a sort of inauspicious start to his life. He, the first 40 years of his life, he was ignoramus. He wasn't a Torah, Torah scholar. But what happened, says the Avastor of Nasan, uh, what's the backstory of Rabbi Kiva's metamorphosis, his transformation into Torah? He was a shepherd, and he took his flock to the well, to the spring, and he saw something bizarre. He saw a rock with a hole in it. Rocks shouldn't have cylindrical holes in it. So he starts asking it around. And they say to him, well, look, there's actually a little drop of water that's continuously, incessantly hitting that same spot in the rock. And over many, many, many years and millions and billions of drops of water, it penetrated a hole. And with Robert Kiva right away, he says the words that will reverberate throughout the Jewish world for all eternity... Homer. If soft water can penetrate a hard rock, hard Torah can penetrate my soft heart. And he immediately dedicated himself to Torah study. And of course, the rest is history. Rabbi Kiva became the greatest leader of his time and one of the vital links of Torah for all of history. Now, it's 2017. There is a rock somewhere on this planet that without this rock, 
we perhaps wouldn't be here. Because this rock was the motivation for Bakiva's inspiration. And he saw the rock. And he was inspired and went to study and became the great Rabbi Kiva. So there's this there's stone somewhere. Maybe it's around. Maybe it's not around. But there, well, uh, there's certainly matter that's around. Maybe it was the rock destroyed. But where is this rock? How can we don't talk about this rock? It should be in the Jewish Smithsonian. It should be. It should be in the Temple Institute. It should be somewhere in a museum. We should be talking about this rock. We should have a name for it at least. Don't you think? This is the rock of Torah. Call it what you want. I don't know. There's a lot of names we can think about it. But why don't we talk about this rock? How come no one talks about this rock? There's this stone that's a foundational stone for, for Torah, for continuity, for Jewish people. Also, think about what kind of devastation would have happened to us if, if Rabbi Kiva didn't see the rock. Almost all of human history hinges on him by chance encountering this rock. How terrifying it would it, would it have been had Rabbi Kiva decided that day to go to a different spring. Who knows how history would have been written in that alternative universe, right? Wrong. Absolutely wrong. Rabbi Kiva himself had the characteristic of Musser. He was someone who already had the head start to achieve greatness because what was the beginning of Rabbi Kiva? The beginning was that he did self-application. Whatever he encountered... He said, what does it mean for me? How do I become a better person? If he didn't see the rock, he would have seen the, the wood. If he didn't see the wood, he would have seen a bird. He would have seen something, but he was primed. Because he was someone who was seeking to become better, he had the core quality of Muslim, what do I see? And how does it impact me? And the Almighty will always show someone what they need to see to become great. It was a message, but there's many messages. There's millions of messages to us every day. If we have what Rabbi Kiva had, we'll, we'll learn the messages. Rabbi Kiva had the quality, so it was a stone. But the stone itself is not what changed. It's Rabbi Kiva who's, who's the hero. If it wasn't the stone, it would have been some other message. The stone is not necessary for Jewish history. Rabbi Kiva is. And therefore, the stone is not talked about uh, uh, in, in Jewish history. I want to read to you. I want to read to you something that's uh, very... Um, it's a very powerful letter. Um, one of the uh, saddest things that happened uh, to our family, uh, pro- arguably the saddest thing that ever happened to our family happened to us about uh, 10 days ago, 12 days ago. Uh, my sister, Esther, Esther Kaplan, uh, she had a newborn baby, Shlomo, and tragically, uh, the Almighty wanted his soul back. And uh, at uh, 16 weeks to his life, on the uh, on the Matzei Shavuos, the, ni- the night after Shavuos, um, he died. And um, just last week, last week they were sitting shiva for him, my sister and her and her hu- and her husband. And I want to read to you a letter. This is a letter that my sister and her husband wrote. Uh, they were. The numbers that I I wasn't there, but my mother flew in to the uh, to sit to help to be there for sh- to visit the shiva. My brother was there. Uh, my brother-in-law's family came in, uh, and there's a, a letter that well, apparently uh, there were so many people who came who came to be Menachem Bavel, who came to visit them. Um, thousands. I heard that's I had numbers. I heard hundreds and hundreds every day. 
uh, really unbelievable. Uh, and, and these people, my, my sister and, and, and her husband, it's, it's amazing that they're, people are coming to them to give them comfort, and they're inspiring them, and they're teaching them. And, and they're strong like a rock. And of course, they're broken beyond belief. And you know what? The pain will never go away. But this is an absolute inspiration. So they hung up a, a note in their apartment building. Uh, and I want to read it to you here. Because this shows us what Musar is. This shows us what greatness is. This shows us the, the core quality that we need to become great. To all of our dear neighbors, friends, and family, we would like to thank all of you for your kindness and concern throughout this tremendously difficult time. And I'm just going to translate just uh, as an aside. I'm going to translate all the Hebrew words into English, so it'll be seamless. We merited to have a beautiful, pure neshama, beautiful, pure soul for exactly 16 weeks before the Almighty decided that it was time to bring it back up to heavens. Shlomo brought us so much joy. His smile lit up our entire world and filled our home with so much goodness. We've given much thought to how to give our baby Shlomo's neshama an aliyah. An aliyah means an ascension in heaven. A pure, perfect soul returned to its maker as the time of Shavuos, the Zman Matan Torah saying, the time of the game of the Torah came to a close. We would like to ask each of you to accept upon yourself some matter, some commitment regarding holiness, be it of purity of speech, guarding your eyes, ears, or mind, a small, manageable commitment that you should do to make yourself more pure in the merit of Shlomo ben Yibadol Chaim Tov Maruchim Avram Yochanan in the merit of Shlomo son of Avram Yochanan so that his soul was soar yet higher and he will be a, a righteous advocate for all of the Jewish people. Again, we sincerely appreciate the outpouring of, of chesed, of kindness, love. It means the world to us. May we merit to greet Mashiach Tzitkenu, Mashiach, speedily in our times together, signed A.J. and Esther. This is Musr. This is greatness. When you encounter something, you say, what can I learn from this? How do I improve myself? Especially something as terrifying as our own mortality. You know, this is a child who had his whole life ahead of him, or so we would have thought. But the Almighty said no. He fulfilled his mission over here, and now it's time for him to come back to heaven. But it shakes us up. And that's, of course, it's, it's, it, who doesn't get moved by something as sad as this? What do you do with that? What do you, how do you bottle up that inspiration with Musr and say, what can I do to become a better person, to learn this lesson? There's a magnificent te- a teaching in the Talmud. The Talmud is talking about how to be victorious, how to defeat the Yetzirah, the evil inclination. And the evil inclination, of course, is a nickname for everything that is standing between us and God, all of our obstacles that we need to overcome to become great people. So the Talmud gives four tactics, four approaches that someone can use to defeat their Yetzirah. 
the last one of them, Yazkir lo yom hamisa. Remind him of the day of death. Everyone's going to die. We all know that. What's this great lesson? The answer is, for someone who has already the quality of Musar, the quality of the core of greatness, someone already has a little bit of what Rabbi Kiva had to take lessons to heart, just thinking about the fact that they are going to die, that alone is enough to kickstart their entire campaign to unshackle themselves from the Eight Sarah. Of course, look at Esav, for example. Esav, Esau, one of the only places in the Torah where someone's own mortality, to my knowledge, someone's own mortality is mentioned. Esau tells Jacob, in the most lopsided transaction of all of human history, Jacob gets Esau's birthright, Esau gets a bowl of red soup. How does Esau justify this? What does he say? Hine anochi holech lamus. Behold, I am going to die. Velamazali bechora. Why do I need this? Do you hear this? The Talmud tells us, how do you defeat your Yetzirah? Remember that you're going to die. And when Esau, when he remembers that he's going to die, he casts away all the spirituality. He says, give me the soup. This one bowl of physical soup is better than a whole eternity of spiritual power. How is that possible? Which one is? The answer is, Everything in Torah, everything. You want to have anything out of it? You need to have this quality of self-application. If you don't have this quality of saying, what can I learn from this? How can I improve from this? What does this mean for me? If you don't have that, if you don't take the lessons to heart, then even the most powerful inspiration in the world won't do anything. We talk about Musser. We're learning Musser here. We can have the greatest lecturers, the greatest rabbis, the greatest teachers, the greatest analogies, the greatest everything. If you don't take it yourself the last mile and say, me, what am I going to do about it? It doesn't matter. You'd be like Esau, you'll say, give me the soup. I don't care about anything. But you had the lesson, so what? You didn't take it to heart. There's a story with the Gon of Vilna. Um, on his deathbed, he held up his tzitzis and started crying. And he said, in this world, for a few kopecks, for a few shekels, you could fulfill a mitzvah. Once you die, not all the money in the world can buy you a mitzvah. So I gave an analogy. Imagine you had a vending machine. I just thought of this today, so I thought it was, uh, I'll share it with you. Imagine a vending machine. And it takes quarters. But what, what it gives out, what it spits out, diamonds, perfect clarity, a carrot diamond, big, big diamond, perfect clean color, everything for a quarter. That's what we're, life here is. For almost nothing, you get incredible things, mitzvahs. And you know what death is? They pull you out and you no longer have access to that vending machine. What a powerful idea. But again, 
Yes, that's a powerful idea. If you actually say, give me all the quarters and let me start pushing quarters left, right, and center. That's what, you know, that's Musser. Not just to hear the idea, to say, I'm in. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do all the mitzvahs to the best of my ability. And I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to stop for anything. Or you could say, wow, what a nice idea. Oh, maybe I'll share it with someone. Uh, and then you'll share it with someone forget about it. You already lost it. You have to right away say, what can I do? And I want to share with you what I heard today. My sister, Esther, she works for a company called Fun and Function. What this company does is they sell toys and products for kids with disabilities, kids with special needs. Fine. Like sensory toys and all that. This was started by a coal couple somewhere in the Northeast. And what they decided to do is to hire a bunch of young girls, young married women, whose husbands are studying in yeshiva in Israel, to work for them. Right? These are talented young women. And I could pay them the same thing I pay people in America, but I could help support Torah. That's their idea. So they have a whole bunch of employees in Israel and Jerusalem working for them, working to do customer support or whatever. Now, my sister works for them. Now, I found out today that my sister-in-law, which is my wife's sister, she also works for them. And she tells us that the company, they decided to make a conference call. A conference call so that they could hear words of inspiration on the heels of this tragedy. And what's going to be in this conference call? My other sister-in-law, so this is complicated to keep in your head, she's going to speak. So my wife said to, my, to her sister, sorry, this will make sense if you map it out kind of uh, on, a, on a graph paper. So she said to her, well, I'd love to listen. Give me the number for the conference call. I want to listen. And she said, well, it's going to be in the middle of the night for you. I'll record it. So this morning, you wake up, there's an email with the, with the recording of the, of the speech of the conference call. So I listened to it. And it's an amazing speech. And what she's saying is, we are moved. We're moved by what happened and what could we do? And she gave a whole speech about, I'll share with you the speech. She brought sources that uh, it's about blessings, saying blessings. And we know, we like to think that you, blessing is a tax, right? You have food, you got to pay a tax. You got to pay a tax to God. You got to say a blessing. That's what we think. Truth is, it's the exact opposite. The blessing is not for the food. It's not there to service the food. You want the food, you need to have the blessing. It's the opposite. You want the blessing, but you can't make the blessing with nothing. You got to have the food. And there's many sources to this. And uh, kind of she illustrated it in a few different ways. Um, for example, she said, well, if you're really thirsty, you drink a cold glass of water. It's really refreshing. You want to thank God. Wow. How Amazing, you say the bracha, shahakrol, niya, betvaro, everything was made uh, thanks to God, and you drink the water. How refreshing. But who made you thirsty and sweating to begin with? Wasn't that also God? So why are we thanking God for quelling the problem that he caused? But the answer is that everything is oriented around the blessing. A blessing is an opportunity for us to connect to God. 
And therefore, the Almighty says, I'll even make humans need to eat and need to go to the bathroom and need to drink in order to achieve the objective, which is the blessing. It's not that we eat and that's fixed, but in order to make it spiritual, say a blessing. No, the objective, the goal is really about the blessing and the food is there to service it. And we, in our heads, conflate it all. We, 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 we have a whole inverted, it's all upside down. We say that, well, we need to eat. Of course we need to eat. Well, let's make a blessing. Oh, God, what a schlep. I mean, a blessing. No, we need the blessing. And the food is the afterthought. Of course, it's delicious. It's wonderful. But the food is there to bring us to the blessing. And therefore, she advised, she said some more examples. Uh, she made a suggestion. Before you make a blessing, and she said that she did this as well. Before you make a blessing, say, this is the goal. Just say those three words. This is the goal and make the blessing. And to remind yourself, this is the goal. Now, why am I bringing this to talk about this today? This shows how you become great. When you encounter something, you say, let's have a conference call to learn lessons. And let's make it practical and say, I want to become a better person. I want to become closer to the Almighty. I want to do more mitzvahs. I want to become, a, I want to work on myself. I want to live with an eye to the future. You know, people today, everyone has said, you got to plan for your retirement, right? You got to meet your financial advisor. Well, how long are you going to be retired? You retire at 65 and you're dead at, at 83 in the best case. Maybe you'll live to 100 but maybe you'll die before you're even 65. So the whole thing about retirement, it's all on a great unknown. But you know what for sure is known? You know what's known? That the fact you're going to die. And once you're dead, you're dead. Well, who is planning for that? That's the one thing that's coming to us and everyone ignores it. Comes alone, Musa comes alone, Torah and say, plan for that. Do mitzvahs for that. Prepare for your real retirement when you're actually placed in the ground then cover it up and forgotten about by everyone else, but you're still alive, your soul's still alive. And if you have mitzvos, you have life and vitality. If you don't have mitzvos, you're on your own stranded on the island, uh, the spiritual island. I want to go back to the, um, to the spies. You'll notice there's a little bit of a contradiction. Uh, in Rashi, in... in Literally within two verses, Rashi seems to contradict himself. The first Rashi, Rashi says, like we mentioned, we read it earlier, these wicked people, they saw, but they didn't take Musar. That's the first Rashi on verse two. On verse three, the, the, these people are called Anashim. Anashim means righteous people. They're righteous. So Rashi says, oh, at that time they were righteous. Well, wait a minute. How could they be both righteous and wicked? The answer is, indeed, at the time, they are righteous. They haven't sinned yet. But because they didn't take the Musr, they're vulnerable to what happens in the future. And therefore, the fact that they didn't take Musr, that is what they are castigated for. They're castigated not for the sin, but for what is the origin of the sin and that's the fact that they didn't take Musr. That's where they went wrong. And, 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 I, and I think there's also a risk of, of this half-hearted Musr. And that is, suppose Miriam, well, she's quarantined. And I was like, well, what's going on, Miriam? The Moshe's sister, she's a great, great, pious woman. She's quarantined. Well, what happened? And everyone says, well, she spoke negatively about other people, about Moshe. She gossiped. 
And then what happens next? I was like, hey, she gossiped. Let's quickly organize a conference call. Let's get everyone together. Let's learn the laws of, of Chavetz Chaim, of Shmir Zalashen. Let's try to guard a tank. And you know what? That's the appropriate thing to do. And maybe they did that. But real Musr is actually implementing that change. To take the Musr to heart. Not to just learn the ideas of Musr, but to create a situation where the Musr impacts us. It, 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 it applies to me. I need to do something. I need to change my behavior. That degree, the real Musr, the real change that can be engendered because of what, Miriam, what happened to Miriam, that they didn't do, and they are considered sin, sinners, uh, wicked people as a result. Uh, th- there's a story with um, an Israeli soldier, two Israeli soldiers. They were on their last couple of days of army service, and they were kind of goofing around. And one of them was on, one of them was on uh, watch duty, and his friend is sleeping in the tent, and he's on the watch duty. And uh, the friend wakes up in the middle of the night and hears blood curling streams. And he runs outside with his gun. What's going on? And he sees his friend totally being asphyxiated by a huge constrictor snake. And his friend's turning blue in the face. And these are totally not religious people. But even when someone comes and when someone confronts death, they right away embrace uh, the notion, at least the the possibility that God exists, and his friend tells him, quickly, Tagit Shema Yisrael, say Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elkin Hashem Echad, and he screams on top of his lunge with the last dying breath, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elkin Hashem Echad, and like magic, the snake unfurls itself and slithers away, and he catches his breath, and he's totally moved, and his life has changed. He goes back home, and he goes speak to the rabbi of his, of his town, of his kibbutz, and he starts learning a little bit, and he goes to the store and buys some tzitzis, and he, he puts some, pulls out from his archives, from his closet, his film that he hasn't used in, in seven years, and puts them on a little bit, and goes to learn a little Torah, and his life has changed. And before you know it, he got married to a religious girl, and he has a nice family, and his religious life is back on track. And someone went over to his friend, the one who was not being choked to death, and he asked him, what happened to your friend? He says, well, he had this amazing experience. Well, what about you? Well, the snake wasn't trying to kill me. That's an example of someone not taking the lesson. Someone has everything there available for him and doesn't take it and say, what does it mean for me, there is uh, a Mishnah that I like to talk about because it's, you know, the, the Mishnah, our sages of the Mishnah, and when they make a guarantee, your ears should perk up. Because if there's a guarantee, you want to you know what the deal is. And the Mishnah, in the chapters of the Fathers, Akavya ben Mahalalel Omer. Akavya, the son of Mahalalel, says, Examine three things. And you won't sin. What are these three things? Know from where you came to where you are going and before whom you are destined to give a reckoning and an accounting. 
Damain Bas Noah from where you came. Mitipas Rucha from a putrid drop. You're nothing. You're not really you're 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 not really substantial if you go back to the primordial roots of you. To where you're going, Lanataholeh, Lamakram uh Afarim of a to a place of dust, worms, and maggots. And before whom are you destined to give an accounting and a reckoning before the King of Kings, the Holy One, blessed is he. Says the Mishnah, if you look at three things, you will not sin. That's an amazing guarantee. I want to point out, it doesn't say if you know three things. It says if you look at three things. It's a really strange thing because you're not looking at these things. You're not looking at the future drop, at the dust and the worms. What does it mean to look at something? To visualize it. You should say, if you know three things, the answer is no. Knowledge alone, that is great. But everyone knows that the fact where they came from and where they're going to, everyone knows that. What it means, histakil, to look, to examine, it means to say, to internalize it, to look, to make it visual, to make it real. And to say, if this is real, automatically your behavior has to adjust. Automatically. The second you realize the fact that you're here temporarily, and you actually realize, not that you know it, theoretically we all know that, and knowledge we all know. I ask people if they're going to die, they say yes. But when I talk to them about, okay, what's going to happen when you're going to die? They don't think about it. And I say, well, well, let's talk about it. Your body's going to die, it's going to stop working, and they're going to put you in a morgue, and they're going to bury you, Oh, well, what then? There's going to be little worms creeping through your casket. And they're going to start nibbling and gnawing at your flesh and worms and maggots. And that's what's going to happen to your body. Look at that. We, we all know that. Yeah, theoretically, we all know it. To look at it and say, I'm, my life as a body is so temporary. And it's so fleeting. And the end game that we're all looking for is so contemptible. It's so embarrassing. What am I living for? If you look at it and try to internalize it, you'll change. I want to end off with a Gemara. The Gemara tells us in the book of Avodah Zarah, it talks about one of the most prolific sinners that history has known. Um... And if you want to look at it, it's the Gemara in Avodah on page 17a. It's the story of Rabbi Eliezer ben Durdai. What I want to pull out from the Gemara is what happened, his legacy. The story goes that he was sinning at rates and in, in, in manners that uh, are, you know, are unimaginable to us. And, and kind of, he was, he was a connoisseur of sin. And at once, once he had this inspiration amidst a sin that turned over his world. And the Gemara says that he was so moved by this that he started praying. He started doing some really interesting things. He started talking to the sun and the moon and the mountains and the stars. And he was saying, someone help me, someone help me. And he finally realized, and he said the critical lines, Ein hadavar talui Ella B. The only person that can affect this change is me. The only person who can change it is me. 
And he started crying and repenting, and he died. And the ultimate legacy, the, the, the eulogy of this person, first of all, called rabbi. Uh, lifelong sin is called rabbi, which is pretty impressive. But the baskol, the prophetic voice announced, Rabbi Elezer ben Dadai is welcomed and ushered into Olam Abba. And when Rabbi Judah the Prince heard that, he started crying. It's possible for someone to spend their whole life to get to Olam Abba and other people achieve it in one hour. What is the secret to achieving greatness, regardless of whether or not that's a greatness that is born out of years or greatness that is born out of one hour? To get Olam Abba means to achieve your purpose in life. How did he do that? What is the critical note that he hit? We could call it Musar. We could call it greatness. The way he called it, Ain Hadavra Talu Elabi. What can I do? How can I impact myself? How can I change? I think the lesson of Musr, the lesson of uh, of this week's parsha of the, of the spies, is to say, where do I fit into this equation? What can I learn from what I encounter? What can I learn from the people I come across, from the individuals and their stories and their happenings? Not to just go to Torah and say, well, let's learn Torah, and they'll try to internalize that. Even beyond that, the greatness is achieved by an attitude change, an attitudinal shift, a paradigm shift, where I say, everything I encounter, I want to learn a lesson from it. Even the sins of others, like in the case of the Sota, or the case of Miriam, or even the punishments of others in the case of of Miriam. Everything I see, it's a mirror for me, and it's an instruction, and it's advice, and it's guidance from God to become a greater person. I hope that uh, we could take this lesson with us, especially, um, you know, look at the, at the inspiration of, of, of my sister and her husband uh, in, 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 in the depths of tragedy. They have this characteristic, and let's be inspired by them and moved by them and take a lesson for ourselves to do something and to commit ourselves to something, and that indeed is the core of Musr, and it is the core of greatness.